0: Hey mamas, have you ever looked at the back of your prenatal vitamin and wondered if you were truly getting everything you need? I know I didn't when I was pregnant. Well today I want to share with you the number one prenatal I suggest to all my doula clients, friends, family, and you, women of strength. It's by a company called Needed. I honestly don't think I was the only one that didn't really understand just how important certain nutrients were for myself or my growing baby. And that is why I love Needed. They have gone above and beyond to create solid products, not only that have the key nutrients, but will also have the optimal amount. Don't be overwhelmed picking a prenatal. Check out all of Needed's products, including their prenatals, pre-probiotics, immune support, and more at thisisneeded.com. Enjoy 20% off by using code VBAC20. Hey, hey, Harry, guess what? It's November, which is one of my favorite months because it's my birthday month. I forever and ever have loved birthday months, so um, this is going to be a great month because it's my birthday month. And today we're kicking it off with questions and answers with myself and Julie. Hey, Julie. Hey. (laughs) Hey, So excited to be here. Welcome back. Um, We're going to get right into this review and then get some of these great questions answered because we know you guys have so many questions. This review is from Bunny Folife 777 and it says, so much hope. It says, I'm 16 weeks pregnant and shooting for my VBAC. I've been in the VBAC link group on Facebook for over a year, but I've only just started listening to the podcast and I don't know why I waited. I'm balling now just two episodes in and the statistics and advice you share are golden. I'm going to listen to it again and take notes this time. I'm scared about having to advocate for myself living abroad, where most doctors push for C-sections. So I'm thankful I can arm myself with the knowledge through the VBAC link. Thank you." Oh, that makes me so happy. And we're going to be talking about statistics on this website, or on this website, (laughs) on this podcast episode today.
1: You are tuned into the VBAC Link Podcast with Megan Heaton, who is a longtime doula and VBAC mom herself, here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a C-section. Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here is your host, Megan.
2: You know I love a good statistic.
0: (laughs) I know, you are the (laughs) (laughs) statistic (laughs) junkie. Okay. Oh. Okay. Julie, I love having you back on the show. It just feels so natural and it's fun. It's, it is fun. It's so fun. So thank you for being willing to join me again on these random episodes. And as we were kind of saying, we are really just wanting to answer some of these questions. Um, so yeah. What are, what are one of the questions right here that you love? That you're like, let's start this off with. Okay.
2: So, gosh, I mean, there's so many good ones. And I feel like we've talked about a lot of these things many, many times over the years, but I feel like every time we talk about them, we get like different perspective in, there's like new information, new evidence. Mm -hmm. Like not everyone goes and listens to every single one of the episodes, although lots of people do, but I think it's fun to kind of like revisit some of these things. And I don't know, I just, there's so many that stick out to me. I feel like one thing that we haven't really talked about like directly like in this way mm-hmm. is is it really safer to give birth vaginally and yes, yes I mean yes it is we can go over that but I really like the second part of that question which is what if the labor doesn't work and goes to a c-section is that more dangerous so I kind of yeah. want to talk about that because because a lot of times people we talk about like VBAC. Is safer than a uh, repeat cesarean statistically, right? We're talking about like all the numbers when we collect all of the um, different things that could go wrong between vaginal birth and cesarean birth. Then, actually, for the second, whether you choose VBAC or repeat cesarean, the statistics are actually not that much different as far as safety goes. VBAC is slightly safer overall, but there really isn't a big enough difference to say like you should absolutely do this, right? That's why like, your right. intuition comes on. But if you want more than two kids, the more C- C-sections you have, the higher chance you are of having severe complications. And by the time I think you get to your fourth or fifth C-section, you have like a one in three chance of needing uh, mm-hmm. a major medical intervention during your cesarean. So I but I, I feel like so many times we, not we just me and you, but like we as people educating about Mm -hmm. birth or talking about birth, Mm -hmm. talk about just those two things, right? Feedback and repeat cesarean. But there's actually a third thing that's worth talking about. And that is a TOLAC, trial of labor after cesarean. I know it's kind of a trigger word for some, but it's just a medical term we're going to use here. Um, TOLAC that ends in a repeat cesarean. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. So the because we know safest, that happens we know what happens it does happen and sometimes happens it's medically me. necessary and sometimes it's not as much and sometimes you just don't know right but the but so we got to put these in three the order of three things right so first the safest is v-back or vaginal birth mm-hmm. second is a scheduled c-section mm-hmm. and then third is a a VBAC attempt or a TOLAC that ends in a repeat cesarean. We also call that a C-back or cesarean birth after cesarean. Mm-hmm. Now, if you labor and then have to have a C-section for whatever reason, there are more risks with that, including like postpartum hemorrhage or bleeding, needing blood transfusion. Obviously, the risks to baby are pretty similar, but it's just harder to operate on a uterus that is contracting, right? You're more likely to bleed because that uterus is contracting. Sometimes, sometimes if it's an emergency situation, the providers have to do things like a special yeah. scar, a special in- type of incision, um, or they have to put you under general anesthesia, which it has um, more risks in of itself. And so I feel like that's a really valid question that she asks: yeah. Like, what if, like what if there's always what ifs, right? But like, what right. is safer,
0: right? Right. Well, and patients that are like parents that are going for a TOLAC, the trial of labor after cesarean, and then may require or end up going to have that cesarean. There's also a slightly increased risk of postpartum infection. Yes. And also some possible complications. And we just will touch touch on a little bit, but um, when a uterus is already contract, right? So when we go in, I'm going to go, I'm going to backpedal a little bit. When we go in for an elective cesarean, Typically, we're not already in labor, like we're not already having contractions. And so, mm-hmm. performing a cesarean on a contracting uterus can possibly cause some issues there as well. So, that's sometimes why a lot of providers don't want an elective cesarean to even go to 40 weeks or past. They want to have an elective earlier on, right? So maybe that also helps give you some understanding of why providers are saying that. But yeah, it just slightly increases in other ways. And yeah, anyway, keep going. (laughs) No, I just,
2: I love that. I think, I don't, I just don't think we've ever, I mean, we do in like our course and things like that, like talk about it that directly, but I mean, that's something to consider, right? And, and I think that it's also really important I feel like it just adds an extra layer of you want to make sure you have a really good provider, because if you have a provider that is not as supportive or is giving you tons of red flags or saying that you have to induce because of big baby, I'm surprised big baby isn't in some of these questions, to be honest, but we can talk about that a little bit later. But like, Mm -hmm. um, it's really important. And that's something to consider, right? And it's all about weighing the risks and what risks are you more comfortable with taking on? Are you comfortable taking on the risk of going into a vaginal birth attempt? You want to try for a VBAC and having the possibility of ending in a repeat cesarean, which the possibility of ending in a repeat cesarean varies depending on where you're birthing. If it's at home birth, like you have like a 10% chance of it ending in a repeat cesarean. Statistically, Mm -hmm. like nationwide, you have about a 30% chance or a 30 to 40% chance of ending in a repeat cesarean. But if you have a really good provider, it's probably only 15 to 20% chance of ending in a repeat cesarean. Sometimes if you have a really bad provider, you might be looking at a 50, 60, or 70% chance of having a repeat cesarean. And so what is acceptable risk for one person is not for another. And if that just sounds too scary for you or a risk that you're not willing to take, then maybe scheduling a repeat cesarean is the right choice for you. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you're a diehard, want to fight the system, prove everybody wrong, no matter what the costs are, Mm then Then maybe you just want to have a VBAC and that's okay. And not not that that's a bad thing, but it's also probably not very healthy way of thinking, but I don't know about like, I was like that. I'm like, I'm getting my my VBAC and I'm going to do everything I can to safely set up the best chances for me and my baby. And that's why I Mm -hmm. ultimately chose out of hospital birth with a really amazing provider that had tons of experience in all types of birth situations. But I I don't know, I think that's super important and that's something to consider. And we're not trying to scare anyone here, Right. But no. we are, but well, we're never going to lie to you. We're never going to dance around the issues. We're never going to um, sugarcoat things. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. I think that was a good question. It's like, okay, well, what if it really is safer to have a vaginal birth? Is it still, you know, what's the safety here? Yeah. I really love that question a lot. And I wish I
2: had some statistics off the top of my head, to be honest. I'm pretty sure we wrote a bra- blog about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to bounce to this next question. Wait, Um, wait, 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 wait. I have something. Did you find,
2: find a stat? No. Well, not. Well, yes, actually I found the blog, but um, if you guys want to know more about the blogs, I'm not going to get into it because we want to move on to all these other questions, but our wonderful transcriber page is going to put a link to the blog in the show notes. So make sure you check it out. And it goes in super, like a really big detail about all of those statistics and pros and cons and for all of those things. Mhm. Yes. And I say our subscriber, but you know what I mean. Like yeah. I feel like I'm still like I still us. It's still we, right? It's always I, know. I don't know. I'm never going to not feel like that. Maybe one day. No, I, probably not.
0: Probably not. So yeah, much. probably not. <laughs> Sorry, let's go um, on. <laughs> yeah, I know you're fine, so I want to talk about catheters. Not like catheters to drain urine. The catheters to um, help with aiding um, in a, in a an induction. So someone asked, like, what's the difference? Because we'll hear it even here in Utah, like Cook versus Foley, right? So a Foley catheter can al- also be the type that actually goes into your bladder and, you know, your urethra and drains urine. But there's also a Foley catheter that can help induce labor. So there's Cook and Foley. So one of the questions were, what is the difference in the two? And really the only difference is, is that, a cook has a double balloon, right? And the foley is not. Like there's not a double. There's just one. So if you can, I don't even know how to like try to give this image. <laughs> Julie, how would you give this image of like a cook catheter? The catheter with two balloons on it, right? Like like a I don't know, like ice cream or something. <laughs> oh, you're you're muted. I was like she's my gosh, like, I'm sitting over here dancing. <laughs> she's dancing in this image, and I'm like, she's saying something. No, I'm thinking like, like, I'm thinking like, like a, a double barbell scoop of ice cream, <laughs>
2: yeah, or like a barbell, right? Like, like if you think of a cartoon yes. barbell with like the big balls on the end, but like shorter, much shorter, yeah,
0: like the balls, yeah. So, both of, them, both of them are inflated with usually, yeah, totally saline, um, yeah. so it's inserted. And then through the cervix and then the saline, the balloons are inflated and then they put pressure mechanically Mm -hmm. onto the cervix, which causes pressure and dilation and effacement and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, and it's been, it's been a really long time since, um, these have been being used and we will see once in a while providers say that a catheter Cook or Foley is a contraindication for someone who wants to have a VBAC. And that is kind of hard because it's, it's really interesting because it's, it's just a balloon that goes in. There's no medicine that is put in at all. It's just saline. And like I said, it's a mechanical dilation. And so if you are curious about methods of induction that your provider is comfortable with. I would encourage you before you get to the 37th, 8th, 9th, 40th, 41st, 42nd week of pregnancy to discuss with your provider more about a cook catheter and what they are comfortable with because it is really hard because sometimes those catheters can be one of the best ways to help induce a cervix or a TOLAC because, or, you know, someone who's wanting to go for a VBAC because they can't always just do, you know, other ripening aids. And this can definitely help with the cervical ripening to, you know, help get to that further progress of having a baby. I love it. And I think it's silly,
2: like sometimes how providers will not induce with a fully for VBAC. And I just don't right. get it because there's no, there's no solid evidence that sh- supports not doing that. I've seen. We've seen there, me I, and you. We've seen so many VBACs So and many, a, and it's been fine and and safe and healthy. And there's just not anything out there. But I mean, I know like every provider has their thing that they will and won't do. And if you have a provider that won't do that, then you might want to talk
0: to another provider. So I now that we kind of know that there are two different types. Let's talk a little bit about the differences, right? Because there there's a difference and. And what they do and and when, why would we even use them and kind of which one's better? I, I think that's a big question is like, well, which one's better to use? And I'm just going to tell you like, after like some evidence, like Cook catheter for cervical ripening has greater results. Have, what have you seen, Julie? What have you seen in the past?
2: Honestly, I'm trying to think if I've ever seen anybody use the Cook catheter. I think I've only seen Foley's, to be honest. I'm I've trying only, to think back. Maybe there's been. I've only one, seen one. But I just can't think of
0: any. Yeah, I've only seen one, and it was up at uh one of the univers. Uh, not one. It was up at the University Hospital here in Utah, mm. and and they used that. And she was like, I mean, she was like barely. It was. She was like half a centimeter dilated, and like, barely, it was like thirty percent effaced, like very little. So they use that for softening, really. But the the Cook catheter, I think, through studies have been shown that it is more effective or has greater cervical ripening compared to the Foley. However, in fact, I'm going to to pull this up. I'm just going to read this. So it shows the duration from the balloon insertion to it exiting and and delivery was significantly shorter using a Foley catheter. Interesting, right. yeah. So, so hmm. Cook catheter has a greater result of actually ripening the cervix, but the Foley has a greater success rate with overall like start to finish. And I mean, I have seen so many people with Foley's. It sounds weird. Sometimes everyone's like, "You're you're suggesting pitocin." <laughs> like, I'm not suggesting it. I'm just saying. I have seen, it's really weird, but like a Foley be placed with Pitocin at like four milliliters, yeah. just a little bit. And it is insane sometimes how great the result is because sometimes when a Foley comes out, maybe you've seen this, like it kind of, you know, cause it's a mechanical dilation. So it kind of like relaxes just a little. It's not like we go backwards, mm-hmm. it just kind of relaxes. Like it's overstretched mm-hmm. and that relaxes. And then we kind of have to like catch up right? But I have seen where with, there's a tiny, tiny, tiny whiff of Pitocin being involved that, that, that. You don't have relax- that relaxing no. as much. Yeah. I yeah, I don't see yeah. it. Like, I don't see it where it's like, oh, you're a four. And then I check and I'm like, oh, you're more like mm-hmm. a three. <laughs> yeah. Which for listeners, I just want you to know that, that that's a thing too. Like if a fully comes out, remember it's a mechanical dilation in your cervix may be stretchy, stretchy, Mm-hmm. But you might not be a full, full four or whatever. And yeah. so talking about top to bottom, Julie, you just mentioned that you know, um, a little bit ago. With me, do you want to talk about that? Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, the cook catheter, you know, has two balloons, essentially, that they fill up with saline. And the mm-hmm. cook has two balloons. The fully has one, right? And so the idea with the cook catheter is that it puts pressure on both ends of the cervix. So my gosh, I don't know if you even said how they put it. Like you insert a catheter in t- through the cervix and then the cook has two balloons on either end that they inflate. And so it pushes to open the cervix, to soften and open the cervix. And then the Foley only has one balloon that they put, that they insert into the top. So like through the cervix, inside the uterus and inflate it there with the balloon. And then and then they like tape it to your leg. And, you and then tug it pulls, it. <laughs> yeah, you got to tug it and it pulls down and it provides a lot of pressure so that the cervix can soften and open and all my clients have just has, have been pretty uncomfortable with it in and then they feel some relief when it comes out. Um, cause mm-hmm. then it just falls out, you know, pulls out at some point. And honestly, I don't know, like this is maybe making me sound like an idiot, but do they tape the cook catheter to the leg or not? I don't know.
0: Um, I did not see it taped to the leg. So
2: I'm wondering if maybe that's why it, the Foley is more successful because you're having just one downward motion instead of two pressures going toward each other. Like, I don't know. I don't
0: know. Yeah. Maybe it's, it's kind of interesting because with the, with the Foley, you like every 20 to 30 minutes, they're wanting you to like pull Hang on it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if but, they do yeah. that with the cook. I don't need because we haven't seen enough. Yeah. We haven't seen enough. So if you're listening today, go comment on today's episode. If you had a cook catheter, let us know what happened. <laughs> so tell us about it. Tell us what your experience was. I think they said in this study that really there was no significant difference in the outcomes specifically like between the two, it's like having more um, Pitocin or the mode of delivery or anything like that. It's just that this, the cook catheter had greater result of cervical ripening and the Foley catheter maybe shortened the duration, but there wasn't like any crazy significant difference of like mode of delivery or you for sure had to use Pitocin with a colic or anything like that. So that's mm. interesting. Yeah. Interesting hello women of strength today's episode is brought to you by needed the leading women's health supplement brand recommended by nutritionally trained practitioners let's talk about lactation are you planning on breastfeeding or maybe you just had your baby and are looking for some extra lactation support well, need its lactation support plan pairs three essential products to optimally support your breast milk supply and it's a great addition to mom's overall postpartum care the plan includes hydration support which offers electrolytes in optimal ratios to help replace what is lost through lactation the powder comes in three delicious flavors lemon lime grapefruit, and lightly sweetened with only real fruit. It also includes collagen protein since an optimal amount of protein is needed to support breast milk supply, caloric needs, and the blood sugar balance. As you may know already, the collagen protein is my fave. Collagen protein can easily be added to smoothies, tea, coffee, and other food and drink. And because stress can impact supply, The plan includes Needed Stress Support, which offers clinical strength, herbal stress, and lactation support. Save 20% off your first order of Needed's lactation support plan or any of their perinatal nutrition products at thisisneeded.com using promo code VBAC20. But the point is,
2: it is safe for VBAC. Like, this is another thing, like going into Mm -hmm. my, I'm gonna get on a teeny little soapbox here and I'm gonna get off really fast, but like, why does the burden of proof To show that something is or is not evidence-based or is like a reasonable option. Lie on the patient. Like if your provider says, no, it's dangerous. We can't do fully for VBAC. Make them show you why. Ask them where the source is coming from. Like, I just don't understand why we have to bring the stuff to show that it's safe. (laughs) Why? It's stupid.
0: <laughs> Why? I Why? mean, I mean even the American Journal um, of Obstetrics and Gynecology, they say that Yeah, and that's ACOG's Foley- journal. Journal? Yeah, yeah. They say Foley catheter did not increase the risk of uterine, uterine oh my gosh, uterine rupture in tolac It says that similarly uterine scar dehiscence was not associated with a Foley catheter. So why are we having providers? And I mean, I don't ever want it to make it sound like we're bashing a provider or it's a show bashing providers, but we're having providers tell people that they have zero option to be induced, especially if there is a medical reason, right? Sometimes there's a medical yeah. reason we've got preeclampsia or something, you know, something's going on, but this, this mom wants to have a, a trial of labor or a VBAC but then her cervix isn't super great for induction. And so we're being robbed of these options. So, I mean, they even <laughs> say that they they show, the data shows the Foley catheter is a safe tool for mechanical dilation in women undergoing a trial of labor after cesarean. So if your provider is saying you're not a candidate or it's a contraindication for VBAC, then maybe have a it- I mean, I invite you to have a an, an discussion with them, right? Mm-hmm. Like an open discussion of, okay, what I have learned is that it's not necessarily a contraindication. Is there new evidence that we're not aware of? Yeah. Maybe there is. Maybe there's, there's new not. evidence. <laughs> I know, but like, right? Like, maybe, there, yeah. maybe they the have the this doubt, right? secret evidence, right? Like, Is there new evidence that we're not aware of? And is there any way we can have this conversation about it? Can we talk about this? Because Mm -hmm. if it is, then okay. But
2: if not, honestly, gosh, I just honestly, I just think that they, it's just something that they've heard or something that their practice does or something that the hospital says. And, you know, I mean, we all do it in our lives. Like our mom says, oh, this and this. I mean, like, oh, you should never cook with refined sugar you should always use granulated sugar i don't know and i don't know. i'm not a baker, so that's probably not a but like you know and then and then you go throughout your life being like oh yeah my mom says you should never cook, cook with this type of sugar but like that type of sugar is totally fine but like someone you trusted told you that and so it's just like ingrained in your belief right like, the, like i it's have like those a trans feelings.
0: fat argument. <laughs> yeah it's like my gosh
2: like what how many how many beliefs do we hold that even maybe we know that they're just silly but like it, it's just something we've known so long that doing otherwise would feel so foreign to us Like I'm sure that there's, there's so many things in the system like that, where the providers aren't meaning to do harm. It's just the way that they've been taught. It doesn't give them an excuse. I feel like, oh my gosh, there was a quote the other day. I popped that popped up in my feed. I was arguing online with some photographer about birth photography and uh, (laughs) I got, I got a little heated because I was super tired because I've been to three births in four days and I was awake for like 16 hours through the night. And like, anyways, but then A little while later, um, some unrelated person posted this quote in their stories. And I like it because it kind of goes along with what I was just kind of talking about. But it says, um, there's just some person writing this, right? Like, don't assume malice. Assume ignorance. Life is easier. The world is kinder. And you can educate. Actual malice is pretty rare, I find. Mm. And then somebody else commented and said, always remember Hanlon's razor, never assume malice when incompetence will suffice as an explanation. That said, never forget Fred Clark's law either. Sufficiently advanced incompetence is indistinguishable from malice. There's a certain point at which ignorance becomes malice, at which there is simply no way to become that ignorant except deliberately and maliciously. I'm gonna, I'm gonna forward this to you
0: were you i was Should gonna say we? were you yeah, for that because that mm-hmm. is a, that's amazing never just assume malice assume like, ignorance they just don't know ignorance.
2: and it's okay because there's lots of things we don't know too but like but when you get to the point where you're just completely refusing to see that there's any other way then that's malice. where it gets to be malice, malice and aggressive and, and but like i love a provider that will say like or like a nurse, right? When I'm in the, oper- in the um delivery room doing peanut ball or spinning baby things and the nurse is like, oh, tell me more about that. That is like a position of like maybe ignorance and they want to learn and do better, right? Like they just don't know those things. But when you have a nurse come in and says, oh, we don't use the peanut ball before seven centimeters because it
0: doesn't do anything. That is like a malicious form of ignorance. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah okay i love that so so much thank you for sharing that okay i'm glad i screenshot Um, it (laughs) yes me too okay so one of the other questions is about cervical lips Mm. so i know it's a good question because you know it's it's hard because it happens and it's frustrating if it doesn't go away right it's Mm -hmm. like if if i make it to nine and a half centimeters and i have this lip that will not go away why, one, why, why doesn't it go away? Or why does it happen? Two, how can I get it away? What are some ways? And it sucks if it's like that's the only reason why a cesarean happens, right? Like, well, first you want to say what a cervical lip is. Yep, yep. Just in it. case people don't know.
2: Yep. Oh, me. Mm-hmm. Well, cervical lip is just where your cervix is almost fully dilated but there's just like a little sliver of it, like part of it. So like, if you like, imagine like a crescent moon, kind of like Mm -hmm. that little shape where, where like part of your cervix is all the way gone and behind the baby's head. And there's just like a little sliver of it on some part of the baby's head is kind of coming over just a teeny bit, just like a little, just like a little, yeah, a lip,
0: just like a little lip. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And so when we have cervical lips, sometimes pressure pressure on the that part of the cervix helps it melt away right and thin and so we work through positions like what julie was saying peanut ball or we made you like more of a central like a squat or a sitting mm-hmm. on the toilet and sometimes it's an anterior lip. sometimes it's like way on the side sometimes it's a little puffier in the back right so sometimes we We'll use positions to help kind of get rid of that lip, but it's really hard because sometimes even through positions, that lip sometimes doesn't go away. And sometimes it can be massaged mm-hmm. or it can be advanced. Do you, I mean, I'm happy to continue unless I just want to give you an opportunity. No, to talk you're to. good. But advancing, right? So like That's the
2: provider thing. will hold it, hold it. At, during a contraction and push back. That's really painful if you don't have an epidural, but if you have an epidural, it's a good way to do it. But I've also seen, and and like the medical system is going to hate me for saying this, but I've also seen people push through a contraction when they have a cervical lip and it slips mm-hmm. right over baby's head. Your but head- you don't want to push too much of the cervical lip also because it can cause the cervix to swell if it's a positional issue. So I mean, there's just a whole bunch of different things you can do. But I think mm-hmm. uh, Megan, I think you were right on track with when you were saying just like movement, position, squatting, like all of those things to help put that pressure on and help straighten baby's head out. I mean, it's not always because of baby's head, but it could be, right? And squatting and putting that pressure down is, is just gonna really help.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so um when a provider is holding it and and helping it, um, I call it an advance, like advancing it over yeah, the baby's yeah. head. Because sometimes it just needs to slip over the baby's head. And it's so stretchy. And it'll stay there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes it's so stretchy that it just goes away, right? Mm-hmm. I'm always getting sound effects here on this podcast. But sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it's like, we're trying, we're trying, we're trying. But then we have possible issues because then we're, we're swelling, we're aggravating it. Right. So then because yep. it's tissue, it's a cervix. So it can get bogged and it can swell. And mm-hmm. so if that is happening and your provider's like, yes, I think through this push I can push it, I can help advance it over this baby's head and it's gonna go away and we're gonna have a baby. Great, mm-hmm. it's worth trying. Right. Mm-hmm. But if it's like over and over and over again and we're advancing it and it's just not going we are risking it to swell. So yeah, yeah movement, um, movement. And this sounds weird too. Here I am suggesting Pitocin again, sometimes <laughs> you just a little bit stronger of a contraction, Yeah, just a little bit stronger, like a little bit of a whiff can, can just put the amount of pressure on the cervix or cause the uterus to, you know, and the cervix to continue dilating. Mm-hmm. And then and then cervix is gone. You can turn metocin off, right? Yeah. Like that's always an option to say, okay, we've done this, this, and this. Let's move on. Some providers, usually out of hospital providers, Julie, I don't know if you've seen this. They'll place arnica up inside mm. if we start getting swelling and things like that. Yeah, so, I so have seen like, that. Yeah, if we're starting to feel, if it's starting to feel puffy, maybe I love arnica, man. Times. It is
2: my favorite arnica gel. Yes,
0: I love it. So sometimes providers will do some arnica up there to kind of help reduce inflammation and swelling and things like that. But cervical lips they can happen for no reason, like really other than just just this happening. People say like, oh, sometimes it's baby's position. Again, we want more pressure. Sometimes it's a lack of um, intensity. If I remember right, if you've had like a leap procedure. Yeah, like like some scarring. yeah. Some scarring really, on the cervix can yes. cause that. Yeah. Yeah. So like a leap procedure or maybe a cervical, like a really bad, any cervical tearing or trauma to the cervix that can create less, I want to say elasticity. I don't know if that's like the right word. Elasticity. Yeah. But it, it can kind of cause a cervical lip. And then I've also seen, I've also seen, this is more for the edema again on the Arnica, like benadryl like providers hmm. give someone benadryl because it's it's an inflammation like antihistamine it is just swelling anyway so there's yeah so many things that you can talk to your provider about but if you have a cervical lip oh go ahead no i was gonna say but sometimes just
2: waiting Doing nothing yes so i mean like i feel like sometimes in labor even we as doulas right even we uh, or us as doulas We like, oh, well, looks like contractions are coupling. Let's do some abdominalists or let's do some side or whatever. But sometimes that's, I mean, that's an intervention. It just is like seeing babies is an intervention. It's not, it's a more natural intervention, but sometimes, sometimes maybe a lot of the time you just need to leave it alone. Right. And like, I don't know. I, I, uh, saw this. Post on social media the other day that was talking about like I hate spinning babies because it's interventions and all these doulas and midwives are like oh let's do spinning babies let's do spinning babies it's that storing an inter- intervention just like Pitocin or whatever I'm like well I don't think it's just like Pitocin but it kind of takes away from the trust of the natural labor process right where we're like oh yeah. we've got to fix this right yeah. and it kind it's kind of in a way saying we don't trust the natural labor process as much, but there's some times that it's good and beneficial to do those things. There's sometimes times when, when you can't just trust the natural labor process alone, right? Yeah. But a lot of times you can. And a lot of times we just need to let these things be and they'll resolve themselves. Right. And so yeah. um, this is a big thing about where knowing all of your options and then trusting your intuition and having someone to guide you like a doula will help you know which is the right thing for you, right? Whether you want to try squatting, try different positions, try arnica gel, try whatever, or just leave it be for a little while. You know, There's no right answer.
0: There is no right answer. And there are these things that we can do and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But we want you to know that there are things you can do. And sometimes those things just do nothing. Absolutely. So let's talk sweeping membranes. Talking about interventions, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. sweeping the membranes, or a, a, I've heard a sweep, a scrape. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, people say like scraping the membranes. So if you don't know what sweeping the membranes is, it's when a provider will insert typically their fingers inside the cervix and separate the membrane amniotic sac. From the cervix and do a little sweep around. Mm. And that releases hormones, right? Like prostaglandins and things like that. And and sometimes it's, it's used to induce. It's a more gentle, (laughs) I don't know if that's how you would say it, more gentle way of inducing. So one of the questions, Mm. Julie, was well, does it work? What are the pros and cons? Should I do this? Um because we do have a lot of providers that will say, "Oh, well, we could just strip your membranes." So what do you think? What do you, what do so, you So
2: Evidence Based Birth used to have a great article on this. And the one thing that I okay, I love I I love Evidence Birth. Like she, she I'm obsessed still with does. Them. But yeah. but this is the thing though, they took away all of their articles and they've replaced them with their podcasts and just their podcast transcripts. And I wish that they would have had just the regular blog article still instead of mm-hmm. having just the podcast and the transcripts, which makes me a little bit sad because then you have to read through the whole thing in order to find what you're looking for. But I do love me some evidence-based birth. And listen, the evidence-based birth does say that there's, there's research that shows that by starting regular membrane sweeps at 37 weeks of pregnancy and doing them, I think it's twice a week, Intel delivery can shorten your pregnancy by one to two days. And I just personally, for me, that's not enough evidence Mm-mm. to say to want to do them because you're getting like 10 plus cervical sweeps. Like right. membrane sweeps like that is a lot for just a one or two day shorter pregnancy. But for right. some people that might be worth it to them. Right. This is just one of those things where like there is a, that evidence that shows. But but this is the thing. Doing one regular, one membrane strip of 40 weeks, that's not going to shorten your pregnancy by one to two days. It's not going to shorten your pregnancy at all. But this right. is what the studies show, right? There might be some anecdotal things or your moderate, moderate might break prematurely and that might kickstart labor. But, um, the one off or one or two membrane st- strips here or there is not statistically proven to shorten that, but you have to start super early. Another well, thing I want to say. Oh. Two day,
0: two yeah, days. Yeah, one to two days. To have to to avoid going in or having it massaged and sweep right, like all the time, twice a week to show you so much pain two and cramping, and no, it's gonna make you miserable. Well, and that's the thing is, I wanted to say is sometimes cervical sweeps or membrane sweeps can can actually promote prodromal labor. Yeah, right. Because we're we're out there and we're disrupting the cervix. And making it think that we need to start contracting, but our body's not really re- labored, ready to labor. And so we're contracting, 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 and then we're mm-hmm. getting exhausted, but labor's not happening. And then the next day we're sweeping again or, or we're contracting again, but then really we don't have a baby for two, three weeks. Mm-hmm. Right? And we're exhausted when labor starts. Yeah. Right? And if, like you said, they can hurt, like if our cervix, Is posterior, which a lot of the times, especially at 37 weeks, is more likely for our cervix to be posterior than it is anterior. They have to go in, back, and around to get to the cervix and sweep, right? It's not just in and out. And so Mm -hmm. that can cause a lot of discomfort that's really, really unnecessary. And you know, one of the questions is like, does it possibly increase infection? Mm -hmm. Right? Because we are we're inserting something into the cervix, sweeping around. It's like maybe, yeah, like yeah. I could. Anyway, well, yeah.
2: but here's the thing, though. So I'm just skimming through this podcast article on Evidence Based Birth website. If you want to find it, it's super easy. Just Google Evidence Based Birth Membrane Sweeping, and it'll pop up right think there for updated, you. Updated,
0: updated evidence on like, don't they have it it's like updated?
2: Well. It's in 2020. Yeah, it's in 2020 for sure. But like they they break down, there's forty-four studies that they look at. And some of them show no difference. Some of them show like nine percent increase in spontaneous rupture of yep. membranes. Um uh-huh. not spontaneous, artificial, like artificial. The accidental, uh-huh. premature uh-huh. rupture of membranes. Sorry. And that's then what zero. Yeah, zero. there's like there's this. I mean, there's a whole bunch of varying interpretations here, but none of them are too conclusive as far as it causing that significant of difference in when labor will start but yes go and read it if you're curious it's really good um, or you li- can listen to it I guess it- as well but they have great yeah. there's great stuff there
0: yeah it's episode 151, 151. On, evidence, on evidence-based birth yeah. yeah yeah so I think just kind of closing out this question in a whole this is, it's a personal preference right if you want to try something, to encourage labor to begin on more of a natural basis then I it could be worth it right but like for my personal suggestion to my doula clients and like what i would do and again like i am me i i am not you is if i were being faced with a medical reason to induce or a concern but my you know but i was trying to get into to go to like if i was going to be induced anyway I would maybe try it, mm-hmm. right? Does that make sense? If, if I was already for sure going to be induced for whatever reason, I would probably try it. Because um, one or two days might be beneficial for you, right, at one that One or two days might be beneficial. And mm-hmm. if I can avoid going in and being hooked up to a pit drip, then mm-hmm. that might be better for me, right? Yeah. So that's kind of one of my things is if I was facing an actual induction, I maybe would try it. My personal, like for my actual birth, my midwife wanted to. She said, "Hey, why don't you come in and we'll strip your membranes and," and I was just like, "Eh, I, no, I just didn't feel that I needed it, right?" And I mm-hmm. didn't know if it would, you know, weaken my membranes or accidentally rupture my membranes, because that is a that's a possible consequence that mm-hmm. we can induce infection. We could accidentally break our water. We can weaken it as we're separating it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so those types of things, for me, were not worth it. I was good to just keep going as I was. Yeah. Okay. Well, there are some other questions. I know we have a couple more before we end. There's one about VBAC after two
2: C-sections, I know. Oh, yeah. Yes. Let's talk about that one. Yeah. Why do so many providers not support VBAC after two C-sections? What does the evidence say?
0: Hmm. Well the evidence says that it is reasonable. <laughs> yeah, it is. <it>, even <laughs> ACOP says short. that it's reasonable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like reasonable. this goes back
2: to what we were talking about before with that quote, right? Like I feel like most providers have just been told it's not safe. And so they say it's not safe. And so they don't do it and they don't support it. And they throw around terms like, oh, it increases your chance. It doubles your chance of unrupture or 50% chance of rupture, things like that, right? And we have this system that's just content on not wanting to have or support any evidence that will go contrary to things that they've been taught right like like i mean you see with the arrive trial like we have been throwing evidence of providers that so many things reduce your chances of c-section for years right we you know like waiting for labor to start um on its own waiting at home, laboring at home as long as possible, avoiding Pitocin, like avoiding elective inductions, all of those things, right? We've been throwing these things at providers for years about nice, safe, non-medical ways to avoid cesareans and providers weren't interested in, in uh, at all, right? But then all of a sudden the Arrive trial comes out and they're like, oh, inducing at 39 weeks uh, decreases cesarean rates and which it doesn't, by the way, <laughs> there's lots of information out there. You can just Google it, but Whereas, as soon as providers are shown something that reinforces the things they already know and do, they're like, oh yeah, that's that's something I can get behind. I can do this because I already do this all the time. Anyways, I already schedule inductions. I already do and I already do these surgeries. And so when they're shown something that will reinforce their beliefs, things that they already know how to do, they're on board with it. But my gosh, you try and show them these non-medical ways of improving birth outcomes. And nobody wants to buy it because they're like, oh, well, that's just,
0: uh, it's not how they've been trained, right? Not how they've been trained. And sometimes they've seen maybe a scary outcome or, or something like that. But I mean, studies do say that women requesting for a trial of labor, a VBAC, you know, having a VBAC should absolutely be canceled, but absolutely be considered and offered an opportunity, um, because we know that success rate is as high as 71, if not higher percent, 71% mm-hmm. or higher. Right. And the uterine rupture rate is not much higher. And if you compare VBAC versus, uh, for VBAC after two cesareans, um, maternal morbidity is really comparable to a repeat cesarean. Like there's not like it's low. It's re- like, it's safe. It's overall safe and reasonable to, to have a vaginal birth after two cesareans.
2: Well, the risks to baby are similar, but the risks to mom are actually higher in a repeat cesarean, like um, yes. increased blood loss, uh, pulmonary embolism. I mean, even maternal death, right? It's still incredibly low. It is incredibly low. Maternal death is we're talking about like 0.000, 000 Something percent, right? But mm-hmm. when you're looking at it with VBAC, you're you're. It's like ten times more likely for a, a mother to die during a cesarean ser- birth than a vaginal birth. And I don't want to scare you because ten times more likely it sounds like a super scary number. Sounds Just like terrifying. oh, you're twice as likely to have a stillbirth after 41 weeks when like the mm-hmm. the it's an incredibly small increase to an incredibly small risk already. Same thing with this, right? It's an incredibly small. Increase is an incredibly small risk, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, but we don't talk about those things, right? Yeah. So, and
0: it's even harder to find evidence for vaginal birth after three or more mm-hmm. cesareans, right? Like, that's that's where it, uh, we don't have a lot of info on. And most providers out there, to be honest, like if you've had three cesareans, it's gonna be harder to find someone that will allow you to give birth only, right? Like it's so yeah. hard, but it still doesn't mean that you're absolutely not a candidate. And it is a ginormous risk that completely risks everybody out. I mean, people do do it. And if that's the risk, like, again, we were talking about it earlier. Like if it's a risk that you are willing to take and it's, it's a comfortable risk for you, right, then that says something, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, VBAC after two cesareans, totally reasonable, totally possible. We've got lots of stories on the podcast. I'm living lots of
2: stories of VBAC after three or four cesareans too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like it's, it's totally possible. And if a provider is trying to tell you that, you know, your risk of rupture really is 50, 60%, then that is one, not a provider that you should probably be going to for a VBAC, but two, something that probably needs to be changed because maybe they just are really uneducated on the evidence because we're looking at just barely over 1%. Mm -hmm. It's really low. And not even that, like there are several different
2: studies, like the ACOG cites two studies in their practice bulletin, and one of the studies shows no difference in rupture rates between VBAC and VBAC after two C-sections, and the other one shows um, a slightly higher increase. I don't remember what the numbers are off the top of my head, but the VBAC link does have a blog on VBAC after TC sections. You can probably just Google VBA2C and it will pull up in the first or second search results. But I'm sure that page will probably also link it in the show notes for us. Mm-hmm. So um, take a look at those statistics because that's like even ACOX says that. And you know when ACOX says something like, why are we not be- behind that
0: evidence? the ACOG published. I know. I know. It's so funny because ACOG goes through a lot to publish these mm-hmm. things, these articles and journals, but then we're not having providers. And and I'm going to say midwives too. We have midwives that don't follow mm-hmm. these, you know, these practices. So we have providers that don't follow it. So it's like, well, the evidence is there. They're showing it's there. Why aren't we doing it? So uh, I know we're like almost out of time, but I just really want to talk about CPD a little bit because mm-hmm. um lately in our inbox, we have been seeing a lot of people being told that they can't have a they they wish they hear the stories, they see the stories, and they wish they could, but they were diagnosed with CPD and they can't be and they can't get a baby out of their pelvis. And for those who don't know what CPD is, it's cephalopelvic disproportion, CPD, and it's just pretty much saying your pelvis is too small. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, and Julie and I personally have been both diagnosed. Told that. Yeah. Yes. In our op reports. Yeah. But this is the thing about CPD is that it's
2: incredibly rare. It's incredibly rare, and and most of the time comes from either um, growing up incredibly malnourished, like incredibly malnourished, like in third world countries, right? Um, so your bones grow in a deformed way, or after a traumatic pelvic injury, right? Mm-hmm. It's very rare for a true CPD diagnosis to come from to a normal, healthy person. Mm-hmm. And people are just, um, and you can't even diagnose it without like a pelvic, pelvimetry, pelvic telemetry, something like that. <laughs> my gosh, um, exactly like, like an actual scan, right? It's not even an x ray. Like, if you say, like, Oh, my doctor gave me an x ray, and so my pelvis is too small. First of all, that's not the right way to diagnose it. Second of all, yeah. pelvises, your body's so full of hormones, right, that our pelvises expand, right? They literally move around as baby's coming down and baby's heads overlap. The skulls, these bones in their heads overlap and squish together and smoosh together to come out of that pelvis. So your pelvis is opening in ways it doesn't normally and baby's heads are smooshing together in ways they never will again. And so how are you even supposed to tell how much the pelvis is going to open and expand and how much baby's head is going to smoosh together? Like, I just, I, I will die on that hill, man. I will die on that hill. They're like, no, you are diagnosed with CPD and that's bullcrap. That diagnosis was bullcrap. And unless you grew up in, you know, Africa, in these poor countries that are growing up and, you know, all these African women still having babies, right? Like, Sorry, that probably sounded a little bad. (laughs) I shouldn't mean to say it like that. You know what I mean? Like these women are still having babies, right? Even though they were malnourished. And so you have to have this severe, severe deformity from malnourishment. Ricketts is the disease that comes along usually with CPD or a pelvic traumatic injury. Like maybe you got, Mm -hmm. I don't know, car accident, thrown off a horse, or got kicked hard in there somewhere sometime, Mm you know, by something. I don't know. Like, Mm -hmm. um, but it's just not as common as people are
0: saying it's not right yeah it's just overused so if you have been told that i hope that through the evidence and we're going to have links here in the show notes click to you know all these studies and things i hope that you know your pelvis is perfect your, your pelvis, pelvis is perfect great. let's make a shirt your pelvis, your pelvis is, is my is, pelvis is perfect yes. making a shirt
2: do it my pelvis is perfect Okay,
0: hashtag why we be back <laughs> right uh, um okay well thank you for being here and as you know thanks everybody for submitting your questions um we're gonna keep doing these where we're gonna we're gonna bring the questions and answers and we're gonna talk about them and we're gonna talk about some of the statistics and the evidence behind some of this so yeah. Make sure to watch out on our Instagram if you haven't followed on Instagram and I'll make sure to let you know when the next Q&A with Julie and I will be.
2: And if you're in Utah and looking for a birth photographer, come and find me. My Instagram is Birth, or you can find me at juliefranken.com. I love to support you and I would love it even more if me and Megan could support you. So reach out. We'll give you a deal. We'll hook, up, hook you up because we love being in the birth race together.
0: Yes, we do. We just got our first one the other day, and it was awesome. Yeah, it
1: was awesome. Interested in sharing your VBAC? Head over to the VBAClink.com slash share to submit your story. For information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, the worldwide database for VBAC doulas, and more, head over to the VBAClink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAClink.